0: Pastor Jason, for the Bible study he has given to us and drawing things into a true systematic structure of our understanding of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. and So we are much thankful for that. However, I'm going to have to put him in church discipline. He keeps cooking all this great food. They show it on the internet and don't think I see it and I never get my tenth of it. So uh, we're just going to have to really push and 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 do something about that, because this cannot go on. Uh, if you will, we're going to return today to the doctrine of church discipline. We're going to be looking in this 14th sermon at the importance of one-to-one church discipline. Now, again, let me remind you. In step one, two, and three, all discipline is informal and really doesn't bring the church within that scope of activity. I mean, if you've ignored step one, two, and three, you deserve four and five. Because you could have solved the problem. And we're going to see today how that the scripture in our Lord teaches us how to prescribe that which needs to be done in order to remove adversarial relationships, wrongs, transgressions of the law of God in the lives of believers that have happened against one another. Well, let's look at this question of, again, church discipline. And by way of just reminding you, church discipline could be rightfully summed up in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Here we have our Lord. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go Tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth or two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he even refuses to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Here's the context for this passage. Context being church discipline. If you bind someone to church discipline as the church, if you make a pronouncement, this person has no reason to believe to be a Christian. They will not obey. And rebellion, the Bible says, is the sin of witchcraft. So assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. That is putting a lot of authority at the hands of men called to justly censure you after your failure to deal with your sins yourself. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three, here's the right context for this verse, church discipline, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now we began three Sundays ago teaching on the meaning of church discipline. And we carefully noted that the etymological root of this idea of church discipline is really found in the idea of one who is learning, one who is in education, one who is tutoring, or one who is, if you will, teaching an individual, teaching them how to live the Christian life. We have said there is both a positive and negative structure to all discipline. And we also have looked at the positive and preventative discipline and the Lord's Day Sabbath where we saw that corrective discipline became very important if the prescriptive discipline could not. Now, Corrective, though, would include both self and church discipline. If you can't resolve it yourself, if you can't resolve it one-to-one or one-to-one with two witnesses, then it goes to the church. Corrective discipline begins with self-discipline. You're correcting your transgressions. So no matter what we do prescriptively in proclaiming the word of God to you, it still falls to you to solve the problem. It's not my job. When I'm called in to solve the problem, that's my job. But that's not mine. My job isn't to run around with a little piece of paper and write up all your sins during the week. A, you sin so much I wouldn't be able to have that much paper without running up a huge debt. And secondly, that's just not what I'm called to do. We're each called to do that ourselves. I want you to understand there is a strong component in all of this. You can end it by dealing with it. And it's going to fall to you and your actions. There is this negative side. Some have called it the dark side of the ministry. there are five steps we've been talking about. The first three being informal, not including self-discipline, but if you would say self-discipline, and then if you said one-to-one, and then if you said the other, that's self-discipline is one of those five steps. Without the involvement of the organized church, so, let's talk about this one-to-one and formal corrective church discipline today. As we now consider the process that we're looking at that is prescribed by the Bible, this is prescriptive. It begins here in Matthew with one believer Who is seeking to help another believer in dealing with a personal transgression. And in particular, where that transgression has been and demonstrated to have been against them. Unlike self discipline, this process involves two individuals. It's no longer yourself. You know, you get up and you say, Oh, I I did something, I thought something I shouldn't have thought. I need to make repentance of that. That's self discipline. That's just one person involved. But the next step includes two people the offender and the offended. Very important. It is in this first step in Matthew eighteen fifteen, which, as we read states, moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. One-to-one confrontation. The Bible, when there is sin, is always confrontive. And so it begins, even when we are seeking to resolve issues of sin, transgression against one another, all counseling begins with you going and confronting them and resolving the issue. In this step, which we have designated step two, we are dealing with a matter that stays between two Christians and is shared with no one else. You got a problem. Your problem is with me. You come to me and I come to you and I share it with no one else. That means, if I can put it in language, you might understand a little more modern language. When you get in trouble and I'm dealing with you or you're dealing with me, or if it's two other people, I don't care, I'm just giving you an illustration that includes me, you don't run and blab everything off to other people. You violated step two already. This is not a public. Once you make it public, It's going to go public. There will be no step three. You've now invoked church discipline from a public point of view. Some people really believe that that which is done in private or secret is okay just as long as you only tell one person at a time and you tell them not to tell anybody else. But it's not. This is your and that person's business alone. You have no warrant from God to share that with anyone else. As soon as you do, you have become a sinner. You've violated the word of God. You've transgressed the command. Do you understand? This is serious stuff. How we deal with this is by the prescription that is given to us. But once it's in public, once it's been confessed, whether it's to the church in public, those who represent the church, the elders and the ministers, the pastors of the church, Once you tell others and let them know, it's no longer private. It's not you yourself dealing with it. It's not you and someone else who says, hey, I've been trespassed against, you've sinned against me, and you deal with it. As soon as you go public with it, you're in public. There's no taking it back. You can't call them up and say, You know, I came and talked to you about this. Just pretend you didn't happen, okay? Don't work. Don't work. As we say in our generation, you let the cat out of the bag. Well, I don't know if anybody does that anymore. Those of you who have cats maybe understand the whole point. You got a cat in the bag, you let him out, the cat's out of the bag. Real simple. You caught it. You had it shut up. And then you open the bag and out it came. Now you're going to have a hard time catching it. I don't know if you've ever tried to catch a cat that doesn't want to be caught. My brother says, come up to our house. We were going somewhere. And he says, stop and and take the cat out and feed it. Uh Uh-huh. I'm a dog person. I had never dealt with a cat. Ever. Except for when I was five years old. Mom got me a cat, it was there about a week, and then she said it ran off. She actually drove it off somewhere. Dumped it out, and that was the end of it. I chased that cat for an hour through that house. An hour! I tried giving it food. It didn't want to do that either. It didn't know me, and it didn't want anything to do with me. When you get the cat out of the bag, it's hard to put it back in the bag. You chase it, and you chase it, you chase it. Most cats are not going to let you catch them. So it is, when you let something out that's private, you've opened up a different doorway. When you've made it public, when it involves... Somebody else, and not step three, where two are brought by the other person, i.e., if it's a sin against you, you bring them with you. It's not they bring two of their friends. But you bring two church members with you to establish what is said and done, and whether or not repentance and reconciliation was established, But once you get beyond you and that other person with people who should not be involved, you have opened the door to be dealt with publicly. And so it is. If I've got a problem with you, or let's say I have trespassed against you and you come to me, neither one of us talk to anybody else about that. That's our own information. This is a brother to brother correcting a problem. So that we will be united in Christ, have one mind, the mind of the scripture, and that we will have been reconciled and that love of redemption that we have of him who died for us. This is where we, one-to-one, confront another about what he believes to be the other's brother's sin, or sisters. I mean, it's I'm using it in the meaning of those who say they're in Christ. The reason why it's quiet, the reason why you don't invoke or go talk about it to someone else, because this must be a transgression. You better be sure you're right. It has to be a transgression of God's law, not an opinion or your personal preference about something has to be a sin against you. Now, if you go spread this to somebody else and you were wrong and it's not a sin, you're guilty of gossip. Now you've got two things. You made a false accusation against the brother and then you went and gossiped about it. See how quickly sin begins to add up? It really does. It's the old saying, you know, if you tell one lie, you got to tell another one to cover the first one. Then you got to tell two or three more to cover those. Well, that's the way it is with sin. You you commit one sin and if you find out you're wrong, you got to go commit another sin in order to cover the first sin. And pretty soon before you know it, you got a whole bag full of sins that you're going to have to repent of. And it drives you, just literally drives you, to anger. You've been caught. You've done it wrong. And you don't like it. Not one bit. This is an informal step, though. There is one reason that it is considered an informal step in the process of discipline. Because the church as an institution stays out of the matter, at least for the time being. Let me remind you that the goal in most instances is what? Unless it's warranted that such discipline never reaches the formal stage of becoming a church matter. That's the goal. You're trying to avoid it becoming a church matter. you got to remember something. If it becomes a church matter, you're dragged into that church matter as well. Because it has to be explained what the violation was and what the repentance is not coming forth from, who was involved, who told it, so that the church knows exactly what's taking place. So when they hear the censure pronounced. They understand the context to it. You want to be careful. Don't let it become a church matter. Because this is where you're going. This is quite contrary to the popular understanding of discipline by most Christians, especially churches today, whether they're Reformed or not. They don't do it anymore. If they do do it, you're usually charged for not heeding the elders. I mean, there's, there's a charge that is out there that is You didn't listen to what we told you, and so we're bringing a charge against you. We don't have that. You've got to be charged in our denomination with a violation of the scripture. Because that's too much authority given just to make it carte blanche. Contumacy, which is what it's called, means you simply did not listen to us. Well, what if we were wrong? Can you still be charged with contumacy? Of course not. But that's why we said we will not let our churches file contumacy charges against anyone. Scripture, confession to support it, and explain the violation thereof. We want to do it the way the Word of God tells us to do it. We don't want to make it up as we go. We just don't want to say, well, you didn't listen to us. We can say that when we say, this is what the word of God said, you didn't listen. But it's because you ignored, you violated the word of God. At the heart of every sin must be a transgression of God's word. And a lot of churches today just simply will not deal with this. They don't want to deal with it. Churches in our own town in Lakeland, even so-called Reformed, will not follow what the historic church has taught, especially coming out of the Reformation, about doing proper church discipline. And so we have a mess. An absolute mess. But I'll talk about that later. Because I'm still thinking about naming some names and some churches. Because they've sinned against us by receiving any kind of report when no report should have been given. And they participated in their sins. And this has gone on for a long time. And we've been very quiet about it, but you know what? The worm has turned. And maybe it's time to fight back on the basis of the word of God and call them out by name. Let us not forget that if the church members are faithful to the Word of God concerning matters of sin and doctrine, we never need to reach out to step four and five in this process. We never have to go to it. Given its importance, we shall invest more time on this particular step since our goal is to bring what? Resolution early in the process. Does anybody here really? Well, I guess there would be some people, but I would hope nobody in our church would want to be in a process of being at war with another person. In trial. A warfare. Advocating against angry with, saying things that do not bring resolution. When our duty is to keep peace and to have love for one another. I don't understand. Why would anybody, if you really loved your Christian brother or sister, why would you be upset if the church got involved in discipline? Why? We're trying to save their soul, and you're saying, let them go to hell. Stop it. We don't like this. I don't get it. I don't understand that kind of Christianity or spirituality. It is neither. It's satanic to the hill. You're Your heart's desire ought to be, I want to see my brother, sister in Christ restored to a right relationship with God in the church of Jesus Christ. Well, our Lord stretches out a scenario here into which one brother has wronged another by transgressing God's law. In reply, our Lord Jesus commands. He doesn't say, now here's a way you might think about doing it. He commands the offended brother to speak to the offending brother. To do it privately, though. As to convict him of his sin, so that he will repent. You see, this is your duty. Not mine as an elder. It's your duty as a church member. You can't escape the fact that you're involved in all the discipline starting from the beginning up until it has to become a part of the church. Unless you take it public... Step one, step two, and step three clearly is your job individually. And he says, if he listens, and by that we means if he admits his actions are sinful, then in confessing his sins, forgiveness and reconciliation takes place. And what happens? He doesn't get a "I apologize." Everybody apologizes. Some people say, I'm sorry. Yeah, we get a little bit smart and we say, we know you're sorry. Now go back to the apology. No, it's not just an apology. What we really want is what? Repentance. Why? Because it means they're going to change their life. They're not going to do it again. They're going to go to war with this sin in their life to make sure it never happens again. That's their duty as a Christian, being called by God. There are no options here in the matter between two brothers. Jesus commands informal discipline as this second process or the first in the context of Matthew 18, but is in our second step, he commands it. There's no if ands, or buts about what has been commanded. You cannot misread this passage. Where there are unreconciled issues, Church discipline is what? Mandatory. And in this case, it begins with what? The informal process. This is church members dealing with church members. So when's the last time somebody did something and it made you mad and you felt it was a sin? When's the last time you went and confronted them? What, you're not obeying the command of God? because that'd be a violation of the command as well. And that would be a sin against God, against his word. And with the duty of being commanded to go to his brother, I guess it would be another sin between the two brothers. You transgressed me. I didn't confront you as commanded by scripture. I violated scripture. And I did you a disservice in my sin. So you were affected by my sin. Let us remember that God holds church members responsible for failing to do this type of discipline when it is warranted. It is true that the offending brother is commanded in Matthew 5, 23 through 24 to go immediately to the offended brother and make things right. Matthew 5, 23 says... Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift to God. Well, it's true you bring your gift to the altar and you remember that someone has something against you, then you need to go to them. But it is also true that the offended party has the same obligation. Ha! Both of you have this obligation. It's covered in two different places in Scripture. One is the offended party, one is the offending party. Man, this brother won't talk to me. I don't know. What did I do to him? I need to go make it right. Reconciliation. That's what we're talking about. Reconciliation. Where there is discord between brothers, reconciliation must be pursued. The question then that must be considered is this. Why in Matthew 18 does it speak of the offended party? Because the offender may in fact enlarge the offense by not going or may realize that his brother has taken offense. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say, let me give a fictitious name here. And I just happened to put this down, didn't think about it. So, Betty, this isn't really dealing with you. I'm sorry. But I had two fictitious names, and I didn't realize that it was going to be, didn't think about it being Betty Darden's name. But you got Betty and Jane. In this event that takes place, Jane responds, Oh, Betty, I'm so sorry. I didn't have the faintest idea what was happening between them. Let me explain. And so on. After a good laugh and a hug, the two old friends are reconciled. In fact, there was no offense, only a misunderstanding. Sadly, such misunderstandings have kept some friends separated from each other for years. It is only when the offended party knows that there is a problem when there has been a misunderstanding that reconciliation can be reached. That's what it really was, a misunderstanding. For that reason, the offended party must make the first move. Whoa, wait a minute. I, I didn't mean anything by that. And if you did that, I'm sorry. I ask apology. I sure didn't mean to do that, but I can't justify it. If you're offended, you're offended, but it's simply a misunderstanding. You've got to bring reconciliation, even if it's not a sin. If there is a misunderstanding that drives two Christians apart, you must deal with it. Jesus wants resolution to our conflict within the church. Whether it's perceived or not, he wants it resolved quickly. So what does the offended party say in this case? When the offended individual goes to the offending individual, he is to bring a message to what? Convict him. Of what? Of his transgression. Yet, Luke 17.3 adds this wrinkle to it. In which we're told, Take heed to yourself. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Rebuke him if he has sinned against you. And if he repents, forgive him. Forgiving. Forgiving him means it's not going to be brought up again. And if he repents of it, it means he's not going to repeat it again. The offended party does not convict the brother initially. This is important. Think about this. Calling him to repent. He didn't begin with a call to repent. You need to repent. Repent. You've sinned against me. Well, we don't even know what he thinks is going on. Instead, he is to rebuke him in a tentative way in which if there is a problem, it is to be resolved. If it's a misunderstanding, resolve it. If it is a sin, he needs to what? Repent of it. You don't come with the charge of being in sin unless you're actually in sin. And it's laid out before all. The word in Luke here means to rebuke tentatively. epi maho is the Greek word. To rebuke tentatively. In other words, the offended brother first goes to the offending brother and explains the situation as he perceives it. That's the rebuke. Hey, let me tell you what's going on. This is the problem I have. This tentative approach allows for an explanation without making a demand for repentance yet. Therefore, the tentative rebuke provides an appropriate prelude to conviction, if such is warranted. If the offending party did act to intentionally violate his brother, nothing short of conviction is in order. This is not some kind of a subjective feeling, of course, Conviction here involves the effective use of evidence to make the case for the fact that a sin, a transgression of the law of God against you, has been committed. So you're not going guns blazing. You're saying, there's a problem. We need to talk about it. We need to resolve it. And if there is a sin, then it needs to be rebuked. This is important. It implies that if one does not have a good case, one should not take offense in the first place. The offense is over a sin. And if he don't have a case against sin, he shouldn't be making the case. Which is why the scripture in the Old Testament says, Excuse me. If you bring a charge against someone and it's found innocent, you're to be dealt with in the same way that you wanted them to be dealt with. That says it in our book of church order. Be careful about bringing, especially even to elders, allegations of sin of them violating their duties. But even to the Christian who sits in the pew, you must be careful not to make a false allegation because that's a sin. This eliminates the case of merely hurt feelings where there is no transgression against the law of God. Discipline <coughs> excuse me, that is brought against an offender must be based on objective evidence. Privacy is the least, last element in the one-to-one process. When the offense is between two people, no other persons, as I said, should be brought into the picture. Unless there is others who were there who have brought that information and you have to take them to testify. I'm saying this because this brother says you said that. And so does this brother. But if possible, it should only be one to one. It should be private. We are not at the fourth and fifth steps. Therefore, really needs to be dealt with very privately. The discussion is to be kept as narrow as the offense. You're there to deal with one basic issue. Deal with it and bring nothing else to bear on it. That said, the promise of absolute privacy is always out of the question. I mean, there's no way to make it absolute privacy Because if they won't repent and you bring in witnesses to see what you say and establish every word and they won't repent, it's going to go public. So there's no concept of an absolute privacy involved. You never can offer that. It's impossible. Not in an ecclesiastical setting. You can make that in the world setting, but you can't make it in an ecclesiastical setting. It just may be that reconciliation cannot be had by means of this second step. The offended brother must not bind himself to such a promise. That is to what? To not speak to it to others when in fact it may be required when it gets to step four and five or even step three, bringing in two witnesses. No longer can you say this is absolute private because the scripture requires you to confess it, to say it, to establish it, to establish the allegation, to show the fact there is rebellion and a refusal to repent of the transgression. The goal, remember, is what? Reconciliation. It's all we're trying to do. To get the church to live in unity and peace one with another. That is what Jesus says to us here in Matthew 18. To win your brother is to become reconciled to him. What does this involve? It does involve an apology, yes. There's no question. There's no substitute for forgiveness. These words represent two different things. Saying I'm sorry only tells another how one feels. I'm sorry. Okay, so you feel that way. But it asks nothing of him. Conversely, when the offender says, I have sinned and God has forgiven me, now will you also forgive me? You have that very element of real reconciliation. When you apologize, You keep the matter. In your own court, as it were, and we say in sports, so to speak. When you ask for forgiveness... It tossed the ball to the other side of the court, that is, to the offended party. But to ask for forgiveness requires you to not repeat the offense again. There's always a duty, an obligation in seeking repentance and forgiveness. For sin and transgression, he must now do something with it. When he replies, I forgive you, he makes a promise never to raise the matter again to you, or he'll never raise it to anyone else. The matter is closed. This is what true forgiveness is the promise is made irrespective of how one feels. Forgiveness is granted only on the act or action of a real repentance. While we must forgive in our hearts, we may only grant forgiveness upon true repentance. Otherwise, you could not carry the matter on through the subsequent steps that we're going to be studying in this process of discipline. Reconciliation not only closes the matter, it restores friendship between two people who once had a relationship. Forgiveness clears the way to that friendship. Often this is missed, and people don't realize the purpose. You see, church discipline has a bad name. Everybody thinks, oh man, now they're going to give him a beating. No, we're trying to reconcile a person who was committed trespass to get him back into fellowship with the people of the church. Forgiveness becomes the method. The matter is closed and nothing more needs to be done. Once forgiveness is granted, the full intent of reconciliation is a restored relationship. If no efforts are made to restore relations, or if not some kind of improvement on them, the relationship will deteriorate. Forgiveness or not doesn't make any difference. What about the little minor offenses? Somebody says, well, yeah, could be an offense, what do I do? Well, the Bible says, love covers a multitude of sins. There may be missteps. And it's only a matter of something that actually is not setting a rock, blocking your way. It's not an obstruction to going forward in your life with this friend. Love will cover a multitude of sin. But it doesn't cover every transgression between two people especially when the transgression has offended another person. Step two in discipline is not fail-proof. God provides another informal step after it. So just because you do it, and you do it right, which will please God, it doesn't mean the outcome is going to be that person will repent and reconciliation will be made. That requires step three, which we will consider next Lord's Day in our worship service. But if you get nothing else, what I really want you to get right now is this. Church discipline is not never has been intended to try to punish someone. God alone does the punishing. That's why we don't torture. Believe me, God's going to do all the torturing that needs to be done on the day of judgment. When we are called upon, when someone kills someone else, we don't torture them until they die. We put them to death in a humanitarian way. Chop their head off, which is instantaneous. Electricity is not so instantaneous, although using the chemicals is pretty close. They go to sleep first because they're put to sleep, and then the chemicals run in and the body dies. We're not allowed to torture. Well, the church, of course, isn't allowed to do anything except say you're in Christ or you're out of Christ. That's our That's all we get to do. But the state doesn't even get to do that kind of discipline. Torture is forbidden. Why? God's going to do that for eternity. He's going to torture them. They're going to pay a price that they can never fulfill throughout eternity. And thus, he alone holds the right to torture a person. But our goal is just reconciliation. That's all we want. We want Christians to live by the law of God at peace with each other. Walk by the law. Live by the law. Obey the law. Obey them that have rule over you, who watch for your souls. Because if you hate those whom God has given to rule over you, It will not be well with your soul, he tells you. You Better read Hebrews 13. That could be a bad thing. When you think that you got more authority, it can say to God, I don't like who I've been and your providence put under their authority, and I reject it. You're not rejecting them, you're rejecting God's authority. Now you're about to invoke a fight with a almighty, sovereign creator, God. Who when he backhands you, it's going to be the worst thing you've ever happened in your life. If I could say it that way. He can torture. We can't he and his providential care can take you through the worst times of your life. He can destroy everything you got because he doesn't. If you say you're a Christian and you're living in sin, believe me, he will make you pay. No greater evidence of that than King David. For his sin The baby died. One brother rapes the sister. The other brother kills the brother for doing that. And that brother then turns against his own father and goes to war against him. And his father has to kill him. Sin brings an effect. And sometimes in the providence of a God, it becomes more than just a conviction. It becomes real punishment on this side of death. And God says, well, you want to see how nasty you can get? I've been very patient with you, but let me begin to take things away from you and let me punish you and see just how strong you really are. And some of the things that we hold dearest during life may be taken from us. Just because we're too foolish to stop and ask forgiveness of sin and reconcile. That's the goal here. We have no other goal. Wish we would. Wish we had a different way of doing things. Can't do it. This is what he says. But at this point, this is your duty. Nine. <clears throat> You're to discipline your own life. Get a hold of it. War with sin. And if there's a trespass, the two of you take care of it together. Don't bring it to the church. Take care of it. Should never be spoken outside of the transgression. Take it to the other party and get it taken care of. It's private. It's a private matter. If they won't hear you, if they will not repent, then take two witnesses, but now you've opened it up. But if they will hear them, then you've won your brother, and it ends there. Now there's only four people that know. But if that don't happen, then it becomes a church matter, and everybody's going to know. It's over. Don't try to tempt God in seeing what he can do to bring you to repentance over your sin. You're not going to like it. I always lived with that fear in my life. I never wanted to offend a living God what Hebrews says. Don't offend the living God. And don't make him angry. That's the wrong thing to do. Because you're not going to like it. Because he's going to see you as simply stepping the blood of his son under your feet. You're saying to him, I don't care. He's not going to tolerate Please, take heed to what is said here today. Take heed to what is said in Matthew. Solve these problems. Let's get them done informally so that we don't have to deal with them formally. So that we don't have, as a whole body, to have to moan and cry and pray and ask God, oh, give us repentance before bad things begin to happen. Lives are destroyed, friendships are gone forever. Oh God, help us, see get them solved informally because it's so important, but it may not happen. You may have to go on to step three and then step four and then finally step five. but we'll talk about that. I'll take you through this so that you'll exactly know how to deal with issues in church discipline. I've already laid the doctrine down in our own book of church order. I mean, as we've prescribed it out of the confession. We've said, well, this is the process. This is what you need to do. But don't confuse sin with misunderstanding when there is no transgression. That means you got to really think through your evidence and ask the question, did they violate the law of God to me and how? Now, the best place to do that is looking at the larger and shorter catechism. It'll lay it out for you pretty good. On the other hand, if it's a misunderstanding, get it reconciled. Don't let misunderstanding separate you from someone else for years. That's horrible. We need to be reconciled before it's too late and you can never be reconciled with someone you love, someone you really appreciate over a misunderstanding. Or even for that matter of sin. Let's get it. Repentance, forgiveness, and move on. I beg you to consider these things. As the true church of Jesus Christ, these are our duties. This is your duty today. Next week will still be your duty. And we'll take a closer look at that. Shall we pray?